This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Proverbs. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I'll give it to you when you have it with you. A righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. An unjust man is an abomination to the righteous. But one whose way is straight is an abomination to the wicked. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice. This is God's word. This has been a really crazy week for me. But before I jump my sermon, it is so odd. We're like the opposite of a Presbyterian church. We have like back row Baptists here. The room is so weighted towards the back. I don't know what to do with this dynamic. All right, I'm going to go in here. Uh, <clears throat> I've had an absolutely crazy week. Ted's been on vacation this week. I thought I'd get a lot done since I wouldn't be shadowing him around, and that has not happened. I've had lots of good interruptions, but tons of interruptions to my work week where my to-do list hasn't really changed, and maybe that's been on my face because at least someone every day this past week has asked me the same set of questions. Rue, what do you think of City Church? Do you like your job? Do you like Orlando? Do you think it's going to work for you and Ted? Do you miss Chapel Hill? And I want to have the courage and answer all these questions for all of you at the same time. First of all, my my wife and I love City Church. We love what God is doing here. We're blown away by what God has done already in this church, and we're thankful to be participating in it. I also love my job. I'm actually quite surprised how much I like my job. I came here and think I would like my job, but it fits like a glove, and my wife can testify I'm not a morning person. I get up early, and I'm very excited about what God has in store for me working at City Church, working with you. And in addition to that, I actually like living in Orlando. Uh, the ease of that transition has been surprising to me. My wife and I were, we were away in New Jersey to be part of a wedding. And when we came back, you know, we came back to heat and humidity. And my wife and kids were like, oh. And I'm like, oh, it's great. And if you look at me, my peoples, my, the ethnicity I come from, we, we like hot weather and humidity. And um, now if you look at my wife, she likes fog and dark gray skies and rain and cold weather. It's great that we interviewed here in December on a cold, rainy weekend. No, seriously, I've been surprised how much we both have enjoyed living in Orlando, and we look forward to really being a part of this community. One of the things I love about City Church is City Groups. It's one of the best things we're doing here, even though there's lots of kinks to work out. And one of the new additions to how we do communities, we do sermon application and discussion, which has facilitated many of you discovering God's Word, figuring out how to apply it on deeper levels to your life, and it's been a blast to watch this unfold, even though we don't do it quite well. 
And one of the things I've noticed that we do as a, as a church, as our city groups, is we volunteer once a month in some capacity with some organization or community and means of justice and mercy. And here I finally found one of our weaknesses. I've been looking very hard, and here it is. It's justice. This isn't true for all our groups, but with some of our groups, it's amazing how our attendance in city group plummets when it's time to go to restore or rescue mission or something. And, and then, there, you know, it's, it's easy to get a sitter to go to the group but when it's time to get a sitter to do the rescue mission, oh, husbands and wives start swapping. And so, you know, I'm not here to throw stones, but it's amazing that when we look at our actions, we can begin to question what our values are. As I interact with leaders about the mercy and justice component of our city groups, it's, it's amazing how frustrated our leaders are. Why are we doing this? I'm not sure what the value of what we actually do is. How do I get my group to get more engaged in this and appreciate this? Some leaders are literally dragging their feet to get their groups to do stuff. For me, this exposes deeper questions. What is justice and mercy? What are my obligations or responsibilities to the poor? How does this all fit into the gospel and to God's rich grace to us? Proverbs takes each of these questions head on. If you look at Proverbs 8, 20 in your worship folder, it says, I walk in the ways of righteousness in the paths of justice. This is wisdom personified talking to us. Wisdom is like walking down this pathway, this long road, and it's justice. This is the road that God walks down every, every day. So there's two things we're going to look at briefly this morning. First, we're going to see that justice is a difficult direction and that justice is a desirable destination. First, justice is a difficult direction. As you walk down this pathway, this road of justice, one of the first things you'll begin to understand is you'll understand that the poor have rights. Look at Proverbs 29.7. A righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. Poor here is a catch-all phrase for poverty, disadvantaged, and oppressed. The word knows is what it means. Knows, understanding, discernment. But it's an active, caring, concern, deep understanding. The word's experiential. It's rich. And righteousness, as Ted's already defined for you, is to disadvantage yourself for the advantage of your community. So why would you disadvantage yourself for the poor? Well, Martin Luther King put it well for me. He defined justice and peace for me in a way that stuck to me ever since. He said this, true peace is not merely the absence of some negative force. It's the presence of justice. If you took a quarter out of your pocket and looked at it, that's what justice and peace are. They're two sides of the same coin and they go together. They point to harmonious relationships, a world where there's no more sociological, psychological, relational, or spiritual dissonance. It's the absence of oppression. It's where there's real access and opportunity to the real needs in your life, like work or food or clothing or shelter. And that's right. Food, work, relationship, it's not mercy, there are rights. See, human beings are created in the very image of God, and because they're created in God's image, they have dignity and worth, and they have certain things that are due to them. And it's not right for image bearers of God to not prosper and to be denied opportunities to, be, to prosper. Okay, let me explain it this way. If you heard it said, give a man a fish and you'll feed him today, teach him a fish and you'll feed him for a lifetime. Well, who's going to buy all the fishing rods? And who's going to identify all the people who don't know how to eat? And who's going to actually teach them how to fish in such a way where they can actually perpetually fish and feed themselves? What if the only lake they can get access to is polluted? What if they cannot get access to the good portions of the lake where there's good fish? By the way, who owns the lake? 
And what's the posture of the owner of the lake towards those who need access to the lake? Justice is getting the disadvantage, the access and resources they need to fish so they can flourish. As you begin to understand that the poor have rights, you'll also, as you walk down this very difficult road, you'll understand that the poor have rights to your resources. Look at Proverbs 3, 27 and 28. Do not withhold good from those who it is due. And when it is your power to do it, do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow, I'll give it to you when you have it with you. I actually looked this up in the Hebrew because I didn't want the Bible to teach exactly what's being taught here. And I was, I was like, I know I'm going to find some special adverb and it's going to change everything and it won't say what it's really saying, but it really says what it's saying. And it makes sense. It fits the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself. But the word here, good, it's worse than you think. It's an unspecified good. It could be any good thing, any expertise, any capacity or resource you have. And so the requester has rights to your capacities, your good. The word power here is, again, just generic, power, capacity. So why would, why would the proverb say this? Because the goal, again, is you want your neighbor to flourish. Remember, the goal is to be righteous, where we disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of our community, our neighbor, and our neighbors, anyone who lives near us. And I want to make one short caveat here, and this is the last caveat I'll make. I want to tie this into Ted's teaching from the last three weeks. Not, help, not all helping helps. Some actually hurts. There are categories in the Proverbs for the sluggard and the proud and the wicked, and it would actually be unwise for you to let them to take advantage of your resources. For example, giving money to a panhandler is, can be and often is destructive, not only to them, but to society as a whole. So discernment is needed often in trying to figure this out. So what does stewardship look like? Seven years ago, I met a man who taught me what stewardship looked like. I was a church planner. I was starting a church, and like, unlike Ted, I did everything myself when I first started. And so I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to recruit people. So I was the guy going to the grocery store right before the service, buying communion bread and wine, going, I hope no one sees me doing this. And as I'm walking out, it's February. It's 20 degrees outside. I'm miserable. My wife's ecstatic. You know, it's, this is great. And so, so you know, I, I'm going to my car, and there's this man. He has like 15 layers on, and he's, he's just freezing. I mean, you can just see him rattle. And he's like, do you have any food? Can you, can you get me some food? And I'm like, all right, I'm about to preach a sermon on generosity. The least I can do is buy this man some food. So I put my communion supplies back in the car, hoping the wine wouldn't freeze. And I ran back inside, and I was like, all right, chicken. Now, I saw, I went to the deli section, they had an eight-piece box of hot chicken, I threw four biscuits in there, I felt so good about myself, and I wrapped up the box, and I took it to this guy, I was like, hey, I hope this really helps. And then I was walking to my car, and I see him make a beeline across the grocery store around the side, and like, I knew he was going to take advantage of me. So I walk around the corner, pretending to go to another car to open up, just to see what he was doing, and I was shocked. I was humbled. Crouched in the corner on the side in the alleyway of the grocery store was another man. He couldn't even stand. He was so cold. He was just shaking. And this man, who I gave the food to, opened up the chicken box and just offered him the food. Everything that was his, he began to share with this other man. This man who had nothing, this was probably his first warm meal, the first thing he thinks to do is not take the best portions for himself, but to give it to this friend of his who's in the alleyway shivering to death. I was humbled. I began to understand what stewardship really is. It's to disadvantage yourself for the advantage of your neighbor. Now, why is this so hard for us? Because our parents raised us often very differently from this. 
They've taught us to have long-term investments and to have retirements and big house and security and an upward trajectory for our path. And they've taught us maybe implicitly to advantage ourselves, even if it might disadvantage someone else. And scarily, the Bible defines this as wickedness. And I want you to let that perk. As you begin to walk down this difficult road, you see that the poor have rights and the poor have rights to your resources. You'll also understand, will begin to understand the importance of justice. Look at Proverbs 28, 5. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. This verse will mess with you. I think I seek the Lord. Oh, wait, I don't understand justice. That means I don't seek the Lord. Oh, the word understand is to deeply know. What's being contrasted here is to appreciate justice versus being oblivious to justice. And if you're oblivious and unappreciative of justice, the wisdom literature calls you evil. So when I got to go to India last year, it was the first time I was around some of my uncles in 18 years. And so it was a blast to see them. And I was functioning like an adult finally in their life. Last time I was like 17 or 18. Here I am, 37. And we're just having a great old time. They had made this huge meal for me. They invited all the other uncles and aunts. And I had a blast just being with them. And we got into conversation. And they were asking me what I did that specific day in Calcutta. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm trying to recruit church planners for the urban cities of India to reach professionals. And, but, but one of the things I was doing that day is I have a passion for my, my country, my, my state, the city, my entire lineage is from. And one of the sins that just gets me, it just mm, eats away at my soul, is sex trafficking. Calcutta, the city, which is one of the largest cities in the world, has seven red light districts. And in those seven red light districts, there's 80 to 100,000 young girls and women who are in the sex trafficking industry captive. And I've discovered that there's 16 organizations that are trying to alleviate this oppression and rescue them. And then so far together, they've rescued 800 young women. And so I began to understand this, and I was sharing this with all my, my relatives. My uncle, one of my uncles, was pushing back. He's like, what can we do? We're just one person. How can we stop something that's been going on for centuries and centuries and centuries? It's just going to happen. We just live in a very evil world. And then I started pushing back. I was like, this problem has happened all around the world, and in many civilizations it has been stopped because good men and women, righteous men and women, have stood up. What it might require for India, for Calcutta, is 50 righteous men or women willing to die and to suffer to stop this injustice and evil. When that conversation ended, and ended really well, I was thinking to myself, in light of this verse, is my uncle an evil man? My first blush is like, no, I love him. He's fantastic. He's not evil. And then I started to turn the question to myself, am I an evil man? No, maybe, oh, I don't know. One of the things I think Ted taught us well about the Proverbs is you can't think most of them in absolutes, but in trends. What is the direction of your life? What is the pathway of your life? Are you heading towards loving justice or are you oblivious to it? The scriptures are clear. You're a steward of all the wealth God's given you to do justice. And if you're not generous, it's not that you lack compassion, it's that you're actually unjust. If you're indifferent to the poor and the oppressed and disadvantaged, it means you functionally do not understand the grace of God. Quick sidebar. Some of you in this room may be exploring Christianity. You may be a little confused or find it odd. 
that a Christian pastor needs to talk about justice with his people. It may seem obvious to you. Shouldn't everyone in this room do this? Why should there be a sermon devoted to this? This concerns me about Christianity in the first place. A couple of things. First, I think it speaks to God's grace and patience. There's tons of subjects that are difficult for all of us, and we're all in different places with it. And what's beautiful about our God is he is patient with us, and he brings us along, and his grace is sufficient for us, even in our numbskulls when it comes to the issue of justice. Secondly, the whole idea of ought to or should Many of us in this world or in this room may know that justice is right, but why should we do it? Why ought we do it? How do we know it's right? Christianity is the only worldview that hates oppression and injustice. Christianity is the only worldview where God himself suffered and experienced injustice. It's the only worldview where God himself exercises justice. I'd humbly ask you, those who are considering Christianity, your heart is telling you something, something beautiful about justice. But can your worldview substantiate that? If you begin to deconstruct your worldview, can it support living lavish, large lives for fighting injustice? I would submit to you that the only worldview, the only religion, the only person that hates injustice and does something about it is God himself. As you continue to walk down this road and you begin to see that the poor have rights and poor have rights to resources and you begin to understand the importance of justice, you also begin to understand the centrality of justice in worship Look at Proverbs 21.3. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. This is a better than proverb. It goes to relative values. Every, all these things are important to God, but some of these things are more important to God than other things. And when you look at this passage, it's really simple. Justice is a really big deal to God. And worship that is intermingled with justice and righteousness by his people is so pleasing to him. But worship without justice is literally detestable to him. He can't stand it. Isaiah 58 is the best picture of this. Speaking of Isaiah, I want to just walk you through a couple of passages that highlight this point. The book of Isaiah was written to God's people when they're running away from him. The nation state had abandoned much of what God had taught his people. And so this book does so many things, but one of the themes it talks about is justice over and over and over and over. And here's how the book begins. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fathers, plead the widow's case. Early and often in Isaiah, he's trying to remind them what it means to be right in the land that they live in. Micah, dealing with the same nation about the same time period, was so concerned how God's people had wandered away from their covenant oaths to him, said this in his summary statement that if you're a Christian, you're going to be familiar with because we overuse this verse. Micah 6, 8, he's told you, oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This past couple of weeks, Ted's remind you over and over of Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Jesus is really clear what is central to him. And one of the things that is central to him is justice. James, when he summarizes what biblical religion is, had this to say. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their reflection and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, why is this so difficult for some of us in this room? It could be because this goes against the Christianity, the gospel that we are taught. 
It may be that we were raised or brought into churches and introduced to Jesus that undervalued, underappreciated, undertaught the importance of justice. And it's not that the gospel you're taught was wrong. It may be that the gospel you were taught was incomplete, incomplete. The last thing I want you to see as we walk down this difficult road, this difficult direction of justice, that you will develop a love-hate relationship with the wicked. Look at Proverbs 29, 27. An unjust man is an abomination to the righteous, but one whose way is straight is an abomination to the wicked. Okay, again, think trend again. The righteous find the unjust repulsive, and the wicked find the righteous repulsive. And as you walk down this road of justice, God begins to change your character. You just reflect him more and more. So you begin to hate injustice. So two questions for you that the text is begging for me to ask. Do the wicked hate you? Do the wicked in Orlando have any reason to hate you? Do you hate the wicked? I mean, do you love them because you want to see them know Jesus, but do you hate them for what they do to people in our community? Proverbs 21, 15 takes it up a notch. When justice is done, it's a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. Now, of course, it's a joy. I mean, if you've ever had the privilege of helping a widow to get on her feet or refurbish her home or provide her resources to feed her kids or grandkids, you're going to cry. You're going to be so happy watching her be able to do what she does best. And it makes sense that you bring terror to evildoers. If there's a slumlord, he's impressing and taking advantage of his tenants. And let's say people find out about this and expose him and bring authorities upon him and he's running in terror, that will bring you joy in another whole level and terror to that man or woman. Again, the Proverbs is asking you another question. Are you experiencing joy when justice is done? Are you experiencing joy when justice is done? And are the wicked running in terror because of your faithfulness in the community? Again, why is this so difficult for us? Because it goes against the American dream that we've embraced on some level that gets intermingled with the gospel that we believe. We were, for most part, not raised or groomed to combat evil and to protect ourselves. We were raised to protect ourselves and become insulated from the world that is around us. And that is not biblical religion. As you begin to see this difficult direction, you also see that justice is a desirable destination. Look at Proverbs 11, 10, and 11. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. What I love about this proverb is it's an, it's an invitation for us to use our imagination. It's a challenge for us to prosper and to be the top of our fields and to literally have power and influence. And again, the Bible's not against you having power and influence. It's what you do with that power and influence. And so once you have that power and influence and success, what the scriptures are challenging you to do is to leverage that, to bless your city, to be righteous on not only the micro but the macro level. And when you do that, the city will rejoice and the wicked will perish for those of you who have positions of influence in any remote, in any field, are you using those positions to lead social justice in ways God's given you clarity? For those of you aspiring to be leaders in your field, are you, is it your goal to be an agent of God's transformation in your city? Is it one of your stated goals to alleviate oppression and fight injustice in your community? Because if I read the Proverbs and the rest of Scripture as well, it should be. Let me break this down on a more functional level. Think about where you live, your street, your neighborhood, your apartment complex, your condo. Think about where you work. Think about where you love to play and get a drink or hang out with your friends. Think about your community as your whole. 
Will those who work with you or live near you go, yeah, I'm not sure about this person's beliefs or I'm not sure about this Christianity thing, but gosh, I shudder to think what it would be like to not have them in our community or our street or our neighborhood because they bring so much value. The city would not be what it meant to be if it's not for them. See, the beautiful thing what God's inviting us to do is to see our community and make our community a community of peace, to make it a community of justice and leverage all that we have in his grace to do that. Do you desire that destination, that city of justice, that city of peace? Let me take it up one notch by giving you a case study. Take Holden Heights or Paramore. As far as downtown Orlando is concerned, that is our most impoverished neighborhood. And you don't have to be like a rookie like me to recognize just driving through it once that there's major economic problems there. There's major social problems there. Uh, there's prostitution that's just right out there. It's just, it's just like you look through and go, oh my gosh, this, is, this neighborhood has, has hard times. And it wouldn't be hard to make that jump, that conclusion that school-aged children, probably from the age of, say, 7 to 18, are having a difficult time making it through their neighborhood and the schools that they're slotted for. I, I bet they lack the proper support and models like they do in other communities around the country. Now think about what they get when they wake up and think about what I got. When I was born and raised in Chapel Hill, I was born and raised to the home of a professor of biostatistics at Chapel Hill. I am the least educated person in my family. Talk about my cousins and my uncle's generation. You know, I'm the dummy. I'm the idiot. I couldn't fail. If I wanted to fail, they wouldn't have let me. I had so much modeling and so much intervention, I was bound to succeed on some level. So who's to blame when a child from Holden Heights or Paramore does not succeed? Well, conservatives would blame parents or culture, and maybe rightfully so, but in the end, absolutely do nothing. Liberals will blame government, systemic raise in the education system, and they might be right, but in the end of things, they'll probably do nothing as well. No one rightly blames a child, and there are exceptional kids that somehow get through the system and survive, even though the odds are stocked against them. But who do the Proverbs blame? God blames his people for letting it happen on their watch. Take the greater church. Lump in city church with any other church in this city that you respect and admire and put us all together. Have we really encouraged our best people to think about the problems in our community and apply our best resources at it? Are we encouraging lawyers to form legal co-ops to fight injustice as they stumble into it? Pro bono. Or we're getting our educators and community leaders together and we're putting them in forums and roundtables and we're putting the heat and saying, you got to figure this out or these kids aren't going to make it and tell us what it's going to cost and what it's going to cost us from a human resource standpoint and we will do it. Are we sending our best people to support, restore, and rescue mission? Are they getting our best resources, our best people, our best thinking? Are our best businessmen trying to tackle the economic issues of these communities the answer to most of these questions are no. So what can you do? Dream with me. Dream with me. Was God's desired destination for you? It'd be horribly inappropriate for me to tell you what to do. I don't know you. But as you live out your faith and community, maybe people in your city group can help you to dream of how you're designed to do what God has destined for you to do, to be his arms of justice and mercy in our community. There's all sorts of type of work to do. There's relief work where we do physical and social needs, temporary shelter, crisis counseling, 
There's development work to do, where it's more systemic, where we try to help a person and community reach self-sufficiency. And so there's education and job creation and training and housing development. And then there's reform work to do, which is even harder and more systemic. We're challenging social conditions and structures that aggravate dependency. We, we take on unfair wages and corrupt business practices. We, we look at unfair zoning practices or redlining areas and with banks and, and, and challenging how they might do stuff. We might look at governmental neglect or apathy. Here's something that, that hurt me as I preached this sermon and as I looked through this, as I prepared for this for this last week. I've been here 80 days. And I've had a blast helping my wife and my kids get settled. I've had a blast getting to know many of you. I've had a blast um, being with my pal Ted and trying to figure out City Church. What hit me so hard this week is I haven't done anything. I have not been a just man and I have not been righteous the last 80 days. I have lived off the fumes of what I've done in another community and I found my identity there and not in the gospel. So what do we do? How do we pursue this difficult direction and have this desirable destination? I think the answer is found in another friend of mine named Mike. Mike, I learned about when I first moved to Chapel Hill eight years ago after going to seminary in Orlando. Mike is this older man. He had diabetes. He lost his leg. I saw him lose one leg. He was about to lose another. He had to have dialysis every evening, and he was dying. And so a friend of his was calling around trying to find a pastor who would come and read the scriptures with him and tell him about Jesus. He tried every other PCA church in my community, and every one of them says, we don't provide that service. He called me and said, can you meet this older guy and tell him about Jesus? Like, wait, stop. An old guy is about to die who wants to know about Jesus. I'm in. When can I go visit him? And so I started meeting him every week for two years, and that was probably the most fun I've ever had. I knew God was doing something with him, and I had the same five conversations over and over and over, and we read C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. We went through the book of Revelation. He wanted to. I thought it was kind of fun myself, and it was great. And then something happened one day, and it was extremely powerful. He began to tell me layers of his story. It's not that he was dying and losing his body parts and losing his sight. His wife was also mentally insane. To say she was paranoid would be an understatement. Listening to her story scared me to death until I realized she, wasn't, she was making them all up. <laughs> Mike told me the story behind that story. That I was, or I am the age of what his oldest son should be. And one day, his parents came into town and took the three kids and his wife on a trip in the van. And when they were just like going to the grocery store or something, and a, a milk truck ran a red light, nailed the truck, and he lost his entire family. So there I am looking at this man dying literally before me. The injustice and the suffering he's had is more than I can even bear and I'm like, if there's a man who should hate God and think he's evil, it's this man. And then Mike, this man, looks at me one day and says, it's not right, Rue. What's not right, Mike? God dying for me, it's just not just. I'm the one that's sinned. I'm the one that's messed up this world. I'm the one that's brought horrible things to this world. And he would die for me. It doesn't make sense. It's not just for Jesus to be on the cross for anyone. That's just not right, and I, I can't stand for it. I'm like, oh my gosh, Mike, do you, do you know what you're saying? The only people who talk like this are Christians. What do you mean? Mike, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for all your sins? Yes. 
Do you believe that you deserve wrath for how you've lived in this world? Yes. Do you think he's the beautiful one that now loves you and has given you his robes of righteousness? Yes, you're a Christian. (laughs) What blew me away about Mike is he got it. The only way we'll choose to do justice, the only way we'll choose to give ourselves away for the world, the only way we'll ever look at God and worship him no matter what the situation is in our life is when we begin to see the injustice of the cross. (laughs) When we see that Jesus didn't deserve to hang on the tree for us, but he did it lovingly, willingly, that he is the one that was naked so that we could be clothed and he was stripped naked on the tree. He was the one that was hungry and thirsty on the cross that his people might have food and food forever. He was the one that was lynched. He was the one that was oppressed. He was the one that had people unfairly kill him for something he didn't even do. But he willingly submitted to all that that he might have us and through us literally change the world. Jesus walked down that difficult road And Jesus chose that desirable destination. And because his grace is full and rich enough for all the trouble and mischief we bring to it, he's inviting us to walk with him and enjoy the journey. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your rich mercy to us. Father, we see that you've given us this difficult direction and this desirable destination. And if we're honest, we don't want it. So we beg you to help us to see Jesus. And as we see him, melt our hearts that we might be lost in his grace and his affections for us and that it might motivate us to run with you and to see this world changed. We pray this in Jesus' name.